Welcome to News and Brews. I'm Mike Heslin. And I'm Errol Yabake. And today, we're going to get back to our roots. That's right. We are doing an OG News and Brews conversation featuring uh, just the two of us. Yeah, we're going to take ourselves and you on a trip to South Korea and Afghanistan and New York during a heat wave. It's going to be fun. (laughs) It is a really fun conversation. Our interviews, typically because we have such awesome qualified people coming on as as experts uh, in their field, um, yeah, we tend to take those parts of the conversation a little bit more seriously. And uh, we don't have to this time. And so there's just uh, a lot of fun throughout. Because there were no awesome qualified people on today's episode. (laughs) Pure mediocrity. Enjoy, everyone. All right, Mike, let's get to it. Welcome, everybody. Hello. How's it going, Mike? It is going great. Hello from sunny Carmel Valley, California. I'm taking news and brews on the road this week. Where is Carmel, California? Uh, it's south of San Francisco, so um, sort of south of the Bay Area, almost getting toward like the central coast of California. And what, like, what's there? Why would people go there, except for maybe like trees? <laughs> I've got a client out here for my day job in consulting, and we are doing some strategy and planning work out here for for the week. Very cool. Well, I'm sure they have great breweries out there. So what are you news and bruising with today? Yes. So I am drinking an 805 Ale today by Firestone Walker. Uh, the tagline is properly chill. Mm. <laughs> so it's it's from a town in the central coast of California called Paso Robles, which, fun fact, is the town where James Dean died. Ooh. And as I'm not drinking from, this, died. Right. Right. Not not born the other end. I'll tell you about this beer arrow. If it were pants, it would be those sweatpants that look like khakis. Oh, I love those. Like it's it's a very comfortable drink and that's all that really matters, but then you look down and it's so beautiful, almost almost stately, and it reminds you of a time when you used to care about things, and that's nice too. I don't remember such times. Well, get no. yourself an 805 ale. Do, do we know what the 805 stands for? I'm, I'm, I have a guess, but... Mm, you're going deeper than my knowledge right now. I just assumed it was an area code, so nothing super profound. Anyways, Mike, I am uh, working tonight with a Atlas Brew Works Dance of Days Pale Ale, otherwise known as what was in my fridge right now. I probably should have a beer for news and brews. That having been said, there's a reason that Dance of Days is perpetually in my uh, fridge because on a warm day we hit uh, feels like a hundred plus today, which I felt all of that going to pick up children from school. You need something really refreshing, and you need something that, according to the can, you could pair with sharp cheddar, pad thai, or house shows. So there you go. That's dance of days. Beautiful. Classic. Classic DC beer. Classic DC beer. And apparently, Mike, by the way, as an aside, they have a pretty good brewery that might or might not be right across the street from a park for little kids. So let's put a pin in that one and we'll come back to it later. Wow. Yeah, that might require some extra research. Yes. 
we might have to explore. All right. So we're doing a special news and brews this week. As those who listen know, we often will do the first round where we kind of run through some uh, some significant stories from the last week. Uh, and then we jump into a main story where we've got a guest and we, we really focus the second half of the conversation on one story in particular. Today, in part because I am traveling and in part because it sounded like fun to us and we get to make the rules, we are doing a first and only round where we'll do a roundup of news stories from the last week. Errol and I will talk about them. Which, Mike, is kind of getting us back to our roots. This is actually how in the before times we would just get together and drink beers and talk about the news. And then... In the pandemic times, we said we should do this, and it's a little awkward to use the phone app on the phone. And so we found Clubhouse and then now Green Room to just kind of have a place where we can just talk through the news. And so we're going to get back to those roots and start with a story tonight out of non-Central Coast, California. <laughs> Our first story tonight comes out of South Korea, and I'm not talking about the surprisingly luxurious and roomy Kia Telluride. I'm actually talking about a story that revolves around uh, an image, and it's an image that is an advertisement from a South Korean company. Errol, can you describe what this image is? I think this will make for really great radio. Definitely. And we'll have a link to the, the image in the, in the show notes. And I will say before I describe this image, uh, news and brews. Not yet brought to you by Kia. Um, <laughs> so basically what we're looking at is this beautiful nighttime scene of camping. And so there's a tent that's illuminated by a light inside. There's a campfire that is roaring probably a little bit higher than it needs to be, given its proximity to trees. And there's some lovely stars uh, in the sky. And there's some Korean lettering, and it says, emotional camping must have item. And Mike, I think you wanted me to explain this image because there are two things in addition to what I just described on this image. One is a smoking hot hot dog or sausage that is sitting on top of some of the Korean lettering. And then there is a hand that is approaching the hot dog with the pointer finger and the thumb. And the hand is, is quite a bit larger. So it's, it's sort of like a pigs in a blanket without the blanket, if I can say that, yeah. like a mini hot dog. Uh, and I think that's where our story begins. Yeah, so there was a story in The Economist that used this image as the lead. And I want to read you the opening paragraph in full because, well, you'll get why. Was it merely an innocent sausage? Last month, a poster promoting camping kit sold by GS25, a chain of shops in South Korea, included an illustration of two fingers reaching out to grasp a steaming banger. <laughs> Angry young men complained. They said the detail, which resembled an emoji that depicts a hand making a pinching gesture, was a hidden insult planted by feminists. As everyone knows, the symbol is commonly used when mocking the size of a man's penis. One critic was especially outspoken. Why on earth would the sausage have to be there, and who would eat a hot sausage with their fingers, said Lee Junsok. We deserve an explanation, end quote. So first of all, I have no notes. This piece of writing is perfect. Second of all, this is in The Economist. So yes. th there were definitely air quotes there. You know, this is a classy show here on News and Brews. So we read The Economist. And sometimes <laughs> there's paragraphs like that. 
But they, they also, being British, they get to use terms like steaming banger, which was just so <laughs> expertly placed in the middle of this paragraph. I mean, honestly, the whole the whole article is is well worth reading. I mean, somebody at The Economist had a lot of, like, the subtitle was Sausage Party. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so we should talk about the context because it's also interesting. The actual story is interesting, too. So the man quoted in that paragraph, Lee Jun-suk, is the 36-year-old conservative party leader in South Korea. Uh, he's risen to prominence at uh, an exceptionally young age, railing against radical feminism, which has found an eager audience among young men, despite the fact that South Korea ranks worst among rich countries for working women, according to the Economist Glass Ceiling Index. Harvard and, grad Lee Jun-suk, I might add. Oh, he went to Harvard too? <laughs> of course. <laughs> and I just think we talk some on this show about kind of the meta-narrative around creeping authoritarianism and uh, nationalism around the world. And there's a side to this kind of attitude that we see in the U.S. and other countries, right? Sexism, specifically male supremacism, goes hand in hand with white supremacism, anti-immigrant and anti-LGBT, uh, other hateful ideologies on the extreme right. And, you know, the specific undercurrents that individual demagogues tap into vary by nation, culture, moment. But this is essentially, you know, given the the attention it has now garnered internationally, like, this is the South Korean equivalent of Trump coming down the escalator and calling Mexican rapists. Like, you you know as well as anyone that I hate to be earnest on this show, but I find something really concerning in all these young men getting so worked up about an ad they think is making fun of their small penises. Yeah, there's just so much to unpack there. And I just think, like, this doesn't bode well for South Korean politics. I mean, you you alluded to South Korea ranking worst amongst rich countries for working women. Apparently in 2019, there was a survey of, you know, young folks and some 60% of men in their 20s said that discrimination against women was not a serious issue. More than two thirds of these folks said that unfairness towards men was the actual big problem. And again, in the context of South Korea ranking worst among rich countries for working women. Um, just sort of seeing that disconnect between feeling and reality, particularly in this sort of a direction, uh, really worrisome. Yeah. So Kia, call us. <laughs> All right. On to climate news. On Friday, a leaky pipeline owned by Pemex, Mexico's state-owned oil company, exploded in the Gulf of Mexico, quite literally setting the ocean on fire for about five and a half hours. In what the New York Times described as, quote, a biblical scene that drew comparisons to Mordor, the volcanic hellscape from the Lord of the Rings, end quote. <laughs> when reached for comment, Cleveland's Cuyahoga River called the incident a weak stunt, saying, when I burned in 1969, I also ignited the modern environmental movement and the founding of the EPA. It's nice you have HD video and all now, but let's face it, nothing's going to happen. Uh, yeah, the, the, the Cuyahoga River in this joke has seen some shit. <laughs> That's a real story about Cuyahoga River. Uh, no, the Cuyahoga River uh, is not actually able to comment because it's a river. <laughs> but it did actually burn in 1969. It did actually burn in 1969. And that moment is seen as igniting the environmental movement and the founding of the EPA under Nixon. I mean, speaking of igniting, did you, again, we're going to talk about images here on audio, but like, did you see the images of this thing? And like the tiny little ships trying to do something about it. I mean, I'm sort of laughing and crying at the same time. However, I feel like this was a good week for the internet. And by the internet, I mean memes. Mm -hmm. Because basically those, those small ships were like, 
basically one small ship in the middle of or on the side of the hellscape is recycling. Another small ship is freaking paper straws. And then the other one is like going vegetarian or something. And then it's basically like in the middle is basically the crux of the problem, which is, you know, what's actually important to climate change is these types of energy companies and, and other corporations making big changes to the way that they're doing things. And by big changes, I don't mean setting the ocean on fire. Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely a laughing and crying moment. Since, since we're talking paper straws, I will always celebrate the best paper straw meme I've ever seen, which just said, do you want to drink from a cup, but also save the environment? Now you can do neither with a paper straw. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do think this moment makes us a little nostalgic for the days of memes about the big boat stuck in the canal and all the yes. various bodily functions it called to mind. But you're definitely right. It was a striking visual of like the boats with hoses spraying water on the actual ocean to try to put out the fire as though the problem was not enough water in the ocean. Also, I don't know much about much, but doesn't water not put out oil fire? I mean, I, I figured they knew what they were doing, but it, it seemed strange on a lot of levels. But also, <laughs> like, what are you going to do? Just wait for, like, a hurricane? The article I read was a little bit light on the details but it, and, and sort of the, the conjunctions it used. But it sounds like they basically spent a few hours, like, spraying water on this ocean fire. And then somebody eventually just thought to, like, turn off the supply of fuel to this pipeline. And, and then the fire went out. Oh my God. <laughs> I, I didn't read that. That's yeah. Moving on. I can't with that story in, anymore. In news of a slightly less literal incarnation of the drop in the bucket metaphor to combat the effects of climate change. <laughs> uh, New York city sent an emergency alert to cell phones across the city last week, imploring residents to limit the use of air conditioning and energy intensive appliances, such as microwaves, washers, and dryers to avoid widespread power outages amid an intense heat wave. Facing criticism for asking individuals to sacrifice while keeping the large office buildings and billboards in Times Square fully operational, Mayor Bill de Blasio cited the risk of mass panic and confusion if those billboards went dark, saying that if we turn off the Times Square, people might start to think somebody beats the whiz. N nobody beats the whiz. My, no, everyone still whiz. knows. Everyone still knows. Thank goodness. <laughs> well, and, and like our one New York listener is like, laughing right now and everybody else is like what is the whiz <laughs> you may have to be of a certain age for that one too i don't know Read us if you need to <laughs> going across uh the pond although we will come back to new york i promise the the war in afghanistan or at least the u.s involvement in the war in afghanistan has basically ended this week if you didn't see mike they turned over we turned over bagram air force base which was sort of our last big uh, sort of military outpost. Um, and it was turned over to the Afghan security forces who, you know, were going to try to do their level best to protect it against uh, advancing Taliban. Also this week, top Afghan leaders, basically two of the sort of main rivals in Afghan politics visited the White House, during which President Biden made a sort of verbal commitment, uh, enduring support to the people of Afghanistan. And hmm. and I think that, you know, we're not going to totally abandon Afghanistan. We only had a, a several thousand troops there anyways, but it does call into question. I, I saw an article yesterday or today about how some security officials in the Kabul embassy, the U.S. embassy in Kabul, are worried. I mean, it's I've, I've been there. It's basically the size of a small city. And it's going to be really, really hard 
to protect going forward. And, and so I have lots of un, unanswered questions, but Mike, you're not an uninformed American. I think that's a compliment. Who, <laughs> who, all relative, right? You, you followed this story, you know, from afar for the better part of two decades. Like I've, I've lived in Afghanistan. I, I have sort of thoughts about the country and, and our involvement there, but how do you feel about the U.S. involvement in the war in Afghanistan coming to an end. Yeah, it's you know, and we we did a conversation with News and Brews about Afghanistan in the clubhouse days. You know, I think it's obviously messy. You know, we also had this past week the intelligence community come out and say, "Well, we thought it would be about two years until we risked the central government in Kabul falling and the country devolving into civil war." Actually, that might be more like six months after we leave. Yeah, and that's scary, right? It's a huge country. Afghanistan. It's a lot of people's lives. You know, it's now been, what, 40 years of almost constant war. And uh, there's a real possibility that things might get worse again. So it's, it's a lot to take in. It's really messy. That being said, we've been there for 20 years. For the last 10, at least, there's been some pressure in various parts of American politics to exit and a feeling that this is no longer a justified war to be fighting. And so on one level, I don't know what exactly a better approach looks like from the U.S. perspective, but just really scary to think that we may be doing essentially what the Soviets did uh, at the end of the 80s when they pulled out and then there was a decade of uh, civil war and eventually the Taliban coming to power and, and we kind of know what happened from there uh, from the U.S. perspective. So as a more informed observer of this era, um, what, what's your take on it? I think that that's right. And I was going to bring up the Soviet parallel if you didn't, if nothing else, just to say that it's a fear of mine. I think the frustrating thing is that during the past decade, like you said, of sort of, hey, we should do something about Afghanistan because what we're doing is not working. There's lots of diagnosis of the problem and, and not a whole lot of solutions. And that's not because there's not smart people on this. It's just because there's not really that many great solutions that don't involve continued sort of massive presence and investment by American taxpayers in Afghanistan. And I think it's sort of while I would like to believe that the past 20 years of U.S. blood, sweat and treasure is is not going to go to waste. And I'd like to believe that there has been some really good work that's been done there. I worry about what's going to happen next. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah, I heard some analysis in this past week that said, essentially, they expect that the two sides will begin fighting and will basically fight to a stalemate. Like the Taliban already controls a number of districts throughout the country. They've been emboldened by the US exit, and they are going on the offensive and taking more territory. That being said, the assessment is that they're not strong enough to actually overturn the government in Kabul. So you'll have a lot of fighting, some territory exchanging hands, likely the rise of some local militias, uh, which also happened in the 90s during that civil war. And, and that turned out to be a source of terror for a lot of people. Afghanistan is one of the most stunningly beautiful countries in the world. And that's because it's it's mountainous and it's just impossible. One, impossible to traverse. It's impossible to govern. This sort of central government based in Kabul was basically a Kabul city government that had agreements with kind of local leaders across the 17 different Afghanistans or however many there are. And I think what's likely to happen is that of those 17 or 18 or however many different kind of autonomous 
areas de facto or de jure, they're going to be governed by different people and different entities, some of which are not the Afghan central government. And I think the the sort of planners of the U.S. withdrawal of troops, I think, probably made a calculus that that was not okay. Like, obviously, that's not okay, but it's not worth the investment that we continue to give to, like, maintain the sort of central government rule in all of these places. And oh, by the way, like, the Taliban is still a terrible organization that hates women and doesn't want sort of women to be educated and has all of these sort of fundamental beliefs. But they're also different than they were 20 years ago. And so it could be them being brought into the political fold a little bit more over time. I just think that for the next, it's not six months or a couple of years, but I, I think that there's going to be more violence and more conflict before some semblance of dust settles and you have the you know federated states of Afghanistan under a loose flag that competes together at the Olympics. Do you know, is there a sense of any hope of you know, a negotiated agreement at this point between the central government and the Taliban? I mean, there's still ongoing negotiations. I think the Taliban is not feeling too much like they need to negotiate on things. They're, they're feeling emboldened and, and powerful, which is not unexpected, but, but I think real. So look, hope springs eternal. I'm, I forever will hope that there will be some sort of nonviolent solution, but, but I think that that's probably not going to be the case in Afghanistan for the next several years. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll continue hoping. Back to the United States, because apparently on News and Brews, we bounce around the world. Mike, have you been following Fauci's emails? So Dr. Anthony Fauci's emails got, I don't even know who leaked them, to be honest. It was a, it was a FOIA request. It was a FOIA request of these like zillions of emails that Dr. Anthony Fauci sent to people from like Mark Zuckerberg to his aunt to just like a whole bunch of people. And I listened to a podcast this week. I listened to a podcast with him and he's always animated in like everybody's favorite New England uncle kind of way. But he was like real animated on this podcast. It was Mm -hmm. on the daily. They did a special episode last Saturday. And he was basically like, look, all my emails are legit and they were taken out of context. And so there's a couple of things. He was basically like, one, I didn't do the redacting. So when they got released, there was some redacting Mm. and they redacted just like stupid shit. He was like, there was nothing secret in there. Like, why are you redacting? And it was essentially to gin up conspiracies. We do have this employment crisis, you know, still ongoing and the redactors (laughs) need to work too. (laughs) Yes. They, they need their $15 an hour jobs too, apparently. But so basically he had this like back and forth with Mark Zuckerberg about, you know, Mark reached out and said, hey, can I do anything to help? This is at the beginning of the, of the pandemic. And, and somebody basically redacted a bunch of that. And out of that, conservative media is, is saying that they were trying to 
basically silence people with dissenting views on Facebook. And they just took it to this extreme. And, and Fauci was just incredulous and in, as only Fauci can be. But then the last thing I'll say about this, and, and I will, will shut up, is he made a really good point, as he does often, because the interviewer was basically like, would you have said something different about, for example, mask mandates if you could go back? And he said, how science works is not how hindsight works. How science works is you take whatever evidence you have in any given time and you make, you know, as good a judgment as you possibly can. Going back in time, knowing the evidence that I knew at that time, I would not have changed. If I knew for, you know, some time travel reasons, my word's not his, what I know now, like, yes, of course, I would have changed the mask mandate and things, but we didn't know at the time that those emails were sent out and the guidance was being issued or not that there were things like asymptomatic transmission. We didn't know that it was so respiratory based and all of those things. And he was like, look, that's that's how science works. It's imperfect. We we learn, we iterate. I was definitely listening to that and then reading about it this week. And I was like getting sort of angrier and angrier on his behalf. But the silver lining is that he's not on social media at all. So he didn't see any of this stuff. Yeah, as, as we saw with I think some of the, you know, the WikiLeaks, Hillary and State Department dumps back in the day, like it was sort of just the inside look at a public servant doing their job. And there were actors on the right basically looking to find something to be breathless about. And if you look hard enough, you'll find something to be breathless about uh, when you have a willing audience as well. The one thing I'll say to anyone listening is people stop emailing Anthony Fauci. This guy just he wrote a lot of emails. He was responding to emails from like borderline trolls. And I mean, a lot of people in the medical community as well, which totally needed to be happening at that time. But like these emails were from like the early months, height of uncertainty and worry in the, the early pandemic. Just stop emailing the guy. When the drug ad says consult your doctor, this is not what they mean. <laughs> your doctor is not Anthony Fauci. Just, right. I mean, um, in a sense, he's all of our doctors, but not in that sense. Yeah, he's also been in public service for like five sixths of his career or something. I mean, the guy is he's he's really incredible. Shall we move on to our tech lightning round? Let's do it. So several tech stories in the news this week, the first of which, at least for me, the most important of which was that there was a, another cyber attack. This is uh, ransomware. It ultimately struck more than 1,000 businesses. It was not necessarily the striking of the 1,000 businesses that really caught my eye. It was the sophistication of the attack. So basically what happened is the Florida IT security company was called Kaseya and they got attacked by some some Russia-based ransomware attackers. And this Kaseya in Florida, again, IT security company works with other cybersecurity contractors. And so it was sort of like the sort of middle of the web in a way, and pun intended. And once they got into Kaseya's system, then they could sort of get into 40 or so other cybersecurity firms and then get into each one of those firms' businesses. So it was just sort of like they found an entry in sort of like the mothership, the queen bee, and then kind of did this ripple effect. And ransom demands were 
$50,000 for small businesses and, and up to 5 million for, for big ones. But this is like happening more and more. And on News and Brews, actually, when Donna Sien was, was on several weeks ago, we talked briefly about the summit that Biden and Putin were going to have and how Biden talked to Putin about, hey, you should stop this or the U.S. is going to respond, quote unquote, in a cyber way. And so I don't know what in a cyber way means, but I'm guessing that within the federal government, the options memos that are going to use those words are currently being drafted. It's a really funny turn of phrase, the cyber way. I mean, it sort of like reminds me of every time the tech CEOs get carted out in front of <laughs> the Senate and like yes. senators are being fed talking points by like young staffers and inevitably the memes just explode. Like obviously we don't know exactly what Biden and Putin talked about at their summit. I think there is some risk to, you know, it was widely reported that Biden gave Putin basically a list. You know, this was after the colonial pipeline cyber attack. And it was widely reported that Biden gave Putin a list of 16 critical infrastructure sites that were off limits for cyber attacks. Obviously, the risk there is if those are off limits, does that mean everything else is is on limits? Yeah, uh, I wondered that, too. I don't yeah. think so. Yeah. You never know. Right. I mean, you, you have to assume he didn't say, like, everything else is OK. But but I think you're right that it's really interesting kind of the supply chain attack that they launched on the managed services industry here. Uh, gaining access to a number of uh, a large number of companies by finding this gateway through one, which which we've seen in other attacks as well. I, I'm sure there's more to come on this. Yeah, I don't think we've heard the last of this. But also in tech, Jeff Bezos stepped down. I guess uh, this week stepped down so that he can focus on leaving the planet. Apparently, is his top priority. <laughs> and so in his place is going to be Andy Jassy, former head of Amazon Web Services. But on the line of fleeing the planet, I got to give Jeff Bezos some credit. So he's obviously going to try to go to space, kind of the not full on space, but kind of like space for toddlers or something like whatever mm -hmm. the upper cryosphere. Space -ish. I don't know what it is. Space ish, like zero gravity ish. But he is going to take this total badass named Wally Funk with him. And so I, I went down a Wally Funk rabbit hole today that was really joyful in a way. Yeah, so I'm down she, the funk hole again. I went down the funk hole. So basically she uh, was this sort of pioneering, she's 82 years old and she was a pioneering pilot that worked on the Mercury 13 project and basically told all of the white dudes in the space program in the early days of it to go shove it and that women should also be involved in space flight. And I think that was a direct quote. But the tragic part of her story is that she actually never made it to space. She paved the way for all the female astronauts that came after her and sort of has a place in, in history on a whole host of things. But she never made it up. And so he's he's taking her as one of the passengers uh, that's going to go with him, which I thought was kind of cool. That is cool. Good on it. Moving on. There was a Facebook lawsuit. The Facebook lawsuit would have unwound Facebook's acquisitions of Instagram and WhatsApp, but it was thrown out. Did you see this, Mike? I did see this. And, and you know, there were a lot of people upset by this, most notably Congress, which is worried that it might now have to do its fucking job. <laughs> 
<laughs> tell, tell us about that. So um, these were antitrust lawsuits, and there was some hope by people on both the right and the left, frankly, that these lawsuits would have ended up with Facebook being uh, either broken up or otherwise uh, regulated. That did not happen. The lawsuits got thrown out. Uh, it was somewhat of a surprise to a lot of observers, I think. But it is, I think, emblematic of this interesting moment in Washington where you have people on the right and the left, it's a bipartisan issue, being opposed to big tech and supportive of some regulation on big tech. Yeah, talk talk about that a little bit. So what, what's striking to me about this story and, and just all the stories on tech regulation that are coming out uh, over the past year or so is the bipartisan nature. Now, I, I don't think that both parties for the same reasons are wanting to regulate the tech industry and particularly the tech giants, but there is sort of bipartisan convergence on the need to do something. So unpack mm-hmm. that a little bit for us. Yeah, so the animosity that's bipartisan is actually pretty straightforward, right? There's some real fundamental alignment there between Republicans and Democrats and a lot of other regular people in the U.S. and around the world as well, which is just a level of discomfort with the concentration of power in the hands of a few very large companies. Now, with with the specifics behind that, there are a lot of differences among companies in question, as well as among Democrats and Republicans and how they think about it. You've got Apple, which is a vertically integrated you know, hardware and software maker. There is typically some interoperability among its products, and, and they're seen as sort of a suite of offerings for consumers. With Facebook, you, you basically have three main offerings, the core Facebook app, as well as Instagram and WhatsApp, that are basically parallel social apps, uh, right? So also aimed at a similar customer base. There's kind of some some rhyme and reason to the way they're organized. And then you've got Amazon and Google and Microsoft that are essentially large conglomerates. You know, they, they have some products that are related to one another, some that aren't. Um, you know, Microsoft has a whole suite of business offerings, then they have Xbox as well. Amazon has their marketplace, and then they also have Amazon Web Services and grocery and entertainment and all these other things. Google reorganized themselves uh, a few years back into Alphabet to be a true holding company of, of businesses that are really not related to one another at all. Democrats specifically are looking at antitrust action, things like Apple taking too high a cut of transactions that happen on the App Store, Amazon creating its own products and and undercutting other vendors on its platform, or Google preferencing its own pages and search results. The problem is our antitrust laws were written more than 100 years ago, and most of the jurisprudence under them was last updated during the Reagan years, and they tend to measure anti-competitive behavior uh, that would be subject to monopoly regulation in terms of consumers paying higher prices. And in these cases with these tech firms, the anti-competitive behavior that's happening actually often results in consumers paying lower prices or no prices at all, right? Getting really valuable services for free, which in turn has other deleterious effects, you know, in terms of, of small businesses being squeezed out or our electoral system getting undercut, things like that. Little things like that. Little, little things. Republicans think there's an anti-conservative bias among social media platforms, which is something they tend to assert regardless of facts or evidence. There's a good quote in a recent interview that I wasn't able to track down when I was researching this, but it was an interview with David Cicilline, the chair of the antitrust subcommittee of the Judiciary Committee in the House, where he effectively says he's been a real leader on these issues. He held some great hearings uh, last year where they brought up the tech CEOs and actually had productive questioning sessions of them, which is an aberration for Congress. But he effectively said, you know, if this concern about some anti-conservative bias is what gets Republicans exercised behind good policies, 
then we'll take it. Let them do it. And, and let's work together and figure out something that's a good solution. So, so this is something where we talked a couple of weeks ago, Errol, about uh, areas of bipartisan agreement. And I think right. antitrust regulation, particularly regulation of big tech, is an area where there is some real agreement across the aisle. That being said, antitrust regulation also famously takes forever to implement. All of these companies have armies of lobbyists that are going out to oppose it. So uh, no telling what will happen. Yeah, that was a really good rundown. And it, it reminds me of during the Trump years in Washington, sort of the, the trope was if you wanted to get something done in foreign policy, that you had to frame it in terms of competition with China. And so David Cicilline is basically doing the tech version of that. He's like, I don't really care what, what it takes if, if it leads to better outcomes that protect people and sort of limit, not limit, but ensure more competition and so be it. Let's move back to New York because I feel like yeah. we haven't talked enough about New York today. I feel it like really, that... it really is, is quite a journey we're on today, Errol. Um... We've, talked, we've talked more about New York than we have about D.C., which is weird <laughs> for news and brews. Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance indicted the Trump Organization and its former CFO, Alan Weisselberg, on 15 felony counts, uh, largely centering on tax evasion, uh, where they were keeping two sets of books, uh, one that they reported publicly and one that they maintained privately tracking uh, his compensation, their CFO's compensation in terms of fringe benefits he was receiving. Prosecutors described a 15-year-long tax fraud scheme, including car leases, Manhattan apartments, and other benefits. And one example is the Trump Organization funneled $1.76 million in compensation to Weisselberg without reporting it, avoiding $900,000 in taxes. <laughs> I mean, that's, yeah, I, I mean... I feel neither he nor the the organization basically reported that 1.76 million on which they would have, like you said, had to pay $900,000. So like, I wonder what he did with that 900,000. Now is he going to have to like sell the one bedroom apartment that he got in DC back for <laughs> to, to like pay the $900,000 back? I mean, or yeah, I he may have to end up surrendering more than that, uh, depending on how this goes down. Yeah. Including his freedom. Mm -hmm. What are the stakes for Weisselberg in this? Yeah, I mean, the stakes are, this is someone who is no spring chicken, and he's facing on just the, the main grand larceny charge, which is sort of the coverage that I was reading was basically saying that the top charge against Weisselberg is grand larceny in the second degree, which mm -hmm. I have no idea what that means, but it sounds bad. And what I do understand is that it comes with a it's a felony with a max sentence of 15 years so one does not have to be a legal scholar to understand for an old person that is not good and so basically it's like that was the top charge but there were as you said earlier a total of 15 charges scheme to defraud conspiracy multiple counts of criminal tax fraud there was also you know, charges that were filed against the Trump organization itself. So there was Weisselberg as the CFO, and then there was the Trump organization itself. They've all pleaded not guilty. And so this is going to be sort of New York tabloid obsession for however long this lasts. But here we are. On one level, it seems like given the scope of the investigation into Trump and the Trump organization uh, across jurisdictions, you got the Manhattan DA and the New York attorney general working together on this and reportedly maybe some federal agencies involved as well, that it seems like these are not huge charges uh, on that 
scale to come out. Um, that being said, the grand jury still has several more months to meet multiple times a week. And there is some speculation that you know this is essentially a ploy to get Weisselberg to flip and to testify against Trump. And that if you're a prosecutor pursuing that strategy, that you would start by rolling out some of the charges, but not all. So you basically maintain some leverage to try to exert on, on this uh, defendant. Former President Trump, in a clear indication that he definitely didn't direct these crimes, and the person under indictment definitely doesn't have intimate knowledge of a ton of other crimes he's committed, uh, said that he was deeply disappointed to learn of potential misconduct in his organization, but that he, uh, like the justice system itself, would maintain the presumption of innocence and look forward to a full airing of the facts. <laughs> that was all a lie. I'm just kidding. He went off <laughs> and said some bullshit about, you know, the prosecutor being corrupt Democrats or something. Uh, but he went off and, and he, he definitely did a bunch of crimes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Mike, I think I got you onto this too, but uh, one of the three newsletters that I get in my inbox in the morning is this one called The Flip Side. Great and it yeah, it's it's was started by a colleague of mine on a political campaign back in the day, and uh, she's the Democrat and he's the Republican, her, her sort of co-author, and they comb the deep, dark recesses of the internet so that you don't have to. And they have this sort of, this is what the right media is saying. This is what the left media is saying. And they had a really good roundup. I mean, they have, they always have good roundups of whatever issue they take, but this was their issue today, actually. And essentially the takes on the right that that's really what I read mostly to get out of this newsletter. And and I, I would summarize it in three ways. So one this smells political. So that's what you were saying Trump said. Uh, and, and that seems to be most of sort of conservative media thinks that this is politically motivated. The prosecutors, of course, said that it wasn't, but, you know, we'll never know. The second takeaway from the conservative media is that it's almost like they had the subject of the investigation. So the Trump organization and Weisselberg and went searching for the crime. Uh, that's kind of what they were saying. And they were saying that that's a bad thing or that it, that's, you know, ridiculous or something. But I mean, even though that might be kind of true, it, it reminds me of that other guy they went after and eventually caught on tax fraud back in 1931. Was it, what was it? Do you remember his name? <laughs> uh, yeah. Started with an A, right? It was, I think it was Al Capone mm. eventually got caught on tax fraud. So there's that. Uh, and then the third quick sort of summary point, which I actually thought was was sort of fair analysis, is that if somehow Donald Trump himself gets out on the other side of this, like Weisselberg can go to jail, et cetera. But if Trump himself is seen to have been, quote unquote, acquitted again, end quote, uh, that could add fuel to sort of the fire and, and another feather in his cap that his supporters will love. And I thought that was a, a lukewarm, decent take. Yeah, well, well, we'll see where it goes. So moving on to sports news, Shikari Richardson, a sprinter who uh, I believe won the qualifying race for she the 100-meter uh, sprint in the wasn't close. trials, was barred from competing for the next month, meaning she will have to miss that event in the Tokyo Olympics based on a positive marijuana test, uh, which it uh, came out that she had uh, had used when she was facing a personal uh, tragedy in life. This uh, is, is seen as sort of a farce by many observers and, and certainly a deep injustice and I think a disappointment, uh, not just for her, but but for America and for really the sports world to have such a, a talented athlete disqualified from competing 
on um, uh, technicality like that. In other news, Americans over the 4th of July weekend also took in the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Competition, for which no competitors are judged to see or, or tested to see if they have consumed marijuana. Uh, so it seems a little bit odd that they would be uh, testing for marijuana in sprinting, but not in the hot dog eating contest. Yeah, different standards. If it was maybe like the hot dog and Dorito contest, then maybe they would. Uh... <laughs> yeah, I feel like the Olympics is off to just a real, real solid start. Not only are the people of Japan being totally nimby over this because of COVID, understandably so. It's basically, I don't know if you saw this as well, Mike, there was some story about there was a, a ruling that there's this company that came out with something called the Soul Cap, and it's basically headwear for swimmers who have natural hair. And basically, for some reason, the Olympic Committee or whoever governs that swimming body ruled against their Soul Cap's headwear. And I'm not entirely sure why, but essentially this, I, I saw a tweet that I would like to read here because I think it properly summarizes this. This is by Brittany De La Cretas. She says, so Shikari can't run because of marijuana. Multiple African runners can't run because their T levels are too high, which as an aside is another thing that is still happening. Mm -hmm. And swim caps for Afro hair have been banned. Anyone else see a pattern here? Yeah, that's a great point. You can sort of look at these incidents in isolation and justify them however you want to. But taken together, it, it certainly feels like a, a lot of rulings and technicalities breaking in a particular direction. Yeah. And I mean, it's just look at who's in these governing bodies versus who's competing. End of story. But I mean, look, I, on, on back to the Shikari story, I mean, I, I don't smoke. I've never smoked marijuana. And there's some controversy about stuff that she said in the past. or whatever, But like, none of that stops me from being just really, really angry at this injustice. And like, I was really looking forward to watching her in the Olympics totally destroy everyone else and be out and proud and just sort of amazing and all of her amazingness on, on the track. And, and just like the fact that she's not going to have that opportunity to, to prove just how great an athlete she is. She, she still might be able to compete in the four by 100. Apparently. It's I think actually late, late breaking, uh, she was not on the four by 100 roster. So she, she won't be in the Olympics. Oh man, that's terrible. Well, next yeah, time, sort of but... a disappointing reaction from the Biden administration as well, both from Jen Psaki, the press secretary, and from Biden himself, basically saying, you know, the rules are the rules, which is certainly change true. the damn rules. Right. Change, you're, right. you're the I United mean, States of America. Change the damn rules. You know, after after Obama came into office, he was out there advocating for Chicago to host the Olympics. Right. As the U.S. president, you are not without agency. You're not without a, a platform to speak out for what's right on these issues. Also. Barack Obama inhaled, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so my take on this, I don't not smoke. And I think that gives me some authority on the matter. You know, I can, I can say that there are a number of things that cannabis enhances, uh, right? The level of joy I get from a fresh nectarine, my questioning of my own assumptions about the world, my place in it, uh, my ability to take serious news stories and add on juvenile punchlines for podcast entertainment purposes. This is uh, all theoretical, of course. <laughs> but not not once have I taken an edible or a hit on a vape pen and said, you know what I have a craving for? 
working my ass off to erase the 23 hundredths of a second between my 100 meter sprint time and the world record set by Florence Griffith Joyner that has stood for 33 years. Yeah. It's just not realistic. <laughs> yeah. Mar- marijuana Twitter has been like, wait, it's performance enhancing. <laughs> Again, if we're talking about the hot dog eating contest, there is a case to make, but they don't test for that one. No, that's uh, that's good. Well, we wish Shikari uh, Richardson the, the best and look forward to seeing her in four years. Three years. Three years, because it's the 2020 Olympics happening in 2021. Mike, this was fun. This was a really fun one, Errol. And it was a lot of things, but I think I think we fixed all of them tonight. I think we fix all of them, namely the raging fire in the ocean. <laughs> Especially that one. All right. Good to hear you. And we'll, we'll talk to everybody later. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Take care. News and Brews is hosted by Mike Heslin and Errol Yabuke. Our producer is Alana Nevins. News and Brews recordings happen live each Tuesday evening at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Join the live conversation on Green Room or listen to the podcast available on all major podcast platforms. Thanks for listening.